today with the great Carl Grant, who has had a tremendous career that's included a significant commitment to the U.S. Army as an airborne infantry officer, multiple founder or co-founder roles, a 20-year stint as an EVP of global business development for the well-known Cooley law firm, Cooley LLP. And most recently, he's emerged as a successful author of the book, How to Live an Abundant Life. Carl, thank you so much for joining us on the Road to CEO podcast. Yeah, my pleasure, Will. Good to be here. Did I get that introduction right? That's good. Yeah, as, as right as anybody's gotten it. <laughs> I'm sure I've a few things out, but, you know, I think I, I'm, we're here to talk about your journey in business, and uh, there are a lot of places we could start, but why don't we go back to 1995? What led you to join the Army? Well, you know, actually... I started it on my LinkedIn in 1995. I actually was in earlier than that. So, you know, I, I cut it. You get a little older, you cut, you cut off those dates. Uh, so I actually was, was commissioned in 1988, believe it or not. That really ages me. Uh, so I, I was in ROTC in college. And, um, you know, my, my, my dad was uh, in the 82nd Airborne as an as a enlisted infantry officer. And interestingly, interestingly enough, he made it all the way to the rank of uh, Brigadier General, uh, with my help a little bit. Um, but I, you know, he never pushed me to go into the military. And, and so when I got into college, I started getting good grades. And I showed up on the, the ROTC, you know, radar, and they, they came to recruit me. And I saw that I could get a uh, three-year scholarship uh, if I, you know, applied. So, so I did. And, and my dad gave me good advice. He said, look, you know, if you apply, it doesn't mean you, you have to do it. You're not obligated until you, until you take the oath and sign on the dotted line. And so I thought long and hard about it because getting into the military, you know, you gotta, you're putting your life on the line. You're, 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 you're signing up for something that, you know, you don't have control of. And so I, I, fully understood and grasped what I was getting into. And, and, you know, part of it was the patriotism I was raised with. And, you know, I, I, my dad was in, my son was in, um, you know, there's, there's been a little bit of drop off here in the past few years of, of, of patriotism. Hopefully we'll get it back because, you know, I, I, I was in when Ronald Reagan was president, those were very patriotic times. Don't know if you were around there, but certainly you've heard about it, you know, and, and everybody felt pretty good about being American. And so, um, yeah, I, I never regretted it. It was, it was some of the greatest experiences of my life were, were with um, soldiers, some of the best people in the world who, who serve. Yeah, I was six years old when, uh, when Ronald Reagan was leaving office, but I do have some good memories of that time. Yeah, I was high school and college uh, during, during Reagan, so he really... He was a you know a guy who shaped that whole generation and uh, and I think you know joining joining the military and and serving your country was something that was you know was highly thought of at that time and and so it, it was a good time, great time. Did you know that you wanted to get into business at some point? Yeah, you know, I as uh, growing up, uh, I I really there were there were two things that were in, on my radar. Uh, politics was something that was on my radar in in business and and a lot of that was shaped by my dad you know he he pointed out that you know being an entrepreneur is is a great way to create wealth and have autonomy and so I tried to do that early in my career will and um you know you, you've got kids no no okay well when you have kids that changes it changes everything right I was doing the startup thing and then 
my wife and I started uh, creating, you know, the five children that we have now. And, and as, as uh, you know, in the early two thousands, so, so in, in, in 2000, I joined the management team of the first company to put video over the internet, believe it or not. I mean, we raised $36 million on one frame per second motion JPEG. Wow. And, uh, yeah, and we were we were out ahead of YouTube and everybody, and uh, we got it to three frames per second. We got it to I think MPEG four, you know. But but what happened was March of th- March of two thousand happened, and March of two thousand um, was the nuclear winter for the tech industry, and so after that startup, you know, imploded unfortunately, and then. I joined a company called Cyber CFO, which was a, kind of an early fintech company. We were financial services, but we were morphing into fintech, and we raised close to $3 million. And then 9-11 happened, and that really put the kibosh on a lot of the financial activity. And our investor in our Series A round, I had already lined up a lead for the Series B. I was out raising it, and uh, I was on the board of directors and on the management team. Our Series A investor came back and pulled out of the the B round, and you know, having raised money yourself, right? I mean, you know, that'll put you put you in a tailspin. And so, even though we had we had two million in revenue, um, we you know we we're fairly healthy business, but we were building it off a venture model, right? A venture model is you burn you burn money to grow, and when you're operating like that, when you can no longer burn money, and you have to start cutting things. You know, you can put cut people, but real estate leases are hard to cut. I mean, there's there's some fixed costs. We we were like seventy five hundred dollars away from uh, break even, and that just we just couldn't get there. And you know, my my wife, I'd never forget her saying, you know, how about you um, don't do any more startups while I'm raising all these kids. And so that's why I went back to professional services. So so Cooley at the time was the 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 law firm for both of those those companies that I was working for. Um, had already become very good friends with Mike Lincoln at Cooley, and he was the attorney on both those accounts. And you know, so we had started. I mean, I, I previously worked at PricewaterhouseCoopers, and I was the largest referral source uh, for their old firm. And uh, and so he said, "Hey, doesn't look like it's going too good over there at Cyber CFO. You you want to come join us at Cooley?" And I said, "Yeah, Cooley sounds pretty good right now." And I did, little did I know I'd be there for twenty years, but I was, and I literally left on my 20th anniversary. Wow. You know, that might start to answer another question I had for you. I At one point, I remember some years back, you described yourself as a frustrated entrepreneur. Yeah. Do you remember that? I don't like to, I totally, I totally do. Yeah. And, and, uh, um, you know, I think, I think all entrepreneurs are frustrated, right? Even when you're doing a startup, you know, I'm, I'm still a frustrated entrepreneur because, because you always need more money, more, more revenue, you know, more employees. I mean, it's, it's, it's a frustrating experience, right? Um, but being in the professional services industry, I had to switch gears and no longer were these my startups. These were my friends' startups, right? Right. So I got to live vicariously through guys like you and, and helping companies connect with sources of capital, connect with potential customers and partners, connect with uh, potential, uh, you know, C, C-suite hires. And, uh, and so I built a bunch of startups, not as a startup founder or co-founder or management team member, but as a trusted advisor. And so I got to, you know, it wasn't as, as financially lucrative. Don't get me wrong. Cooley paid me very well. You know, I lived a good life all those years, but there were no, 
you know, equity pops. There were, there was, you know, a nice salary and a, and a year end bonus. Uh, and, and, but I, I got a great amount of joy through watching my friends become successful. Not all of them were successful, but the ones that were, you know, and they had liquidity events and, and I, you know, I mean, it was, it was gratifying to have, you know, a guy's wife come up to you at a party and say, thank you so much for helping my husband. And, you know, and it's, you know, and talk about all the blessings to their family that resulted from what I had done. And that's pretty cool. Right. I mean, I, I, not, not all of, not all of life is about making money. I mean, I, I write about that in the book behind me. It's it's not about enriching yourself financially. You know, you can enrich yourself through relationships and, and when you can help somebody else succeed, there's a certain amount of feeling good that comes along with that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that's really well said. I want to go back to your army experience for a moment. I've talked to a couple CEOs who have spent time in the military and I was curious, do you feel like it was a, a positive for your um, for your growth as a business leader? Absolutely. So some key lessons that you get from the military. One, um, you, you get like a organizational structure and commit chain of command. And, and a lot of that doesn't exist in the startup world. People just don't understand what it's like to have an organization under you. And in, in the army at the age of 21, 22, you know, you're newly minted uh, second Lieutenant and you've got guys who are twice your age saluting you and calling you, sir, that's a pretty daunting experience because you're not worthy of it at all. And so you have to, you have to rise to the occasion and you have to figure out how to take these 40 something year old guys and, and co-opt them to become your, your leaders, right. To, to follow your vision. Uh, and, and I learned early on that the, the army or, or any military establishment does not move without the non-commissioned officers. So you figure out how to get these guys who technically report to you, but if they don't, if you don't have their hearts and minds, they're not going to do what you want. In fact, they'll undermine you, right. Because they have a lot of power. And so I, I, I I saw that really vividly when I was I was pulling security duty in the middle of the night. I was a security officer at the at the national matches. That's a rifle match, and you know you got hundreds of people around with high powered rifles and stuff. It's it's a you know there's a, there's a lot of things that could go wrong. And uh, I actually had what looked like I don't know exactly what was going on. It looked like it could have been a race related riot of sorts uh, in the in the barracks and. The guy who was doing duty with me wouldn't even go in. He's like, I'm not going in there, sir. I, so I went in there by myself, a second lieutenant, and I had all these people that were in the midst of like a riot, and I had to exert my military bearing. And I, I one of the guys said something. I don't, he talked back to me after after I got everybody to calm down. He talked back to me. And I, I was thinking, you know, other than this gold bar on my hat, there's not much I could do. Like when you've got yeah. 20, 30 guys, you know, that are in a riotous situation. Well, right at that time, this grizzly looking E8 bald head, looked like Mr. Clean, walked up behind me and he goes, I got this, sir. And he walked in there and everybody was down in the front leading rest position, which is push up position for military speak. And I mean, they were scared to death of this guy, right? I was scared of him. <laughs> yeah, I was like, thank you. <laughs> because I don't know what the heck I would have done had that guy not shown up and saved my rear end. So that's, you learn those lessons. And so when you go into a tech company, well, 
somebody may technically not be your superior. You learn how to co-op people who can help you perform better. They might not even be in your organizational structure, Will. And so I, I've, I've learned the art of how to do that. And then the other thing it teaches you, this is another very key um, thing that you just don't get if, if you don't have a, an experience like this, it is servant leadership. All right. So, so when you're an officer in the military and it's time, for example, this is one, one um, kind of illustration when it's time to eat, right? There's a limited amount of food that you have for the unit. And, and so as the officer, you don't, you could, but you don't eat first, right? You let all of your soldiers and underlings eat before you. And guess what? If there's no food left, you don't eat. That's the way it works. And so, and, and, and it teaches you to take that approach to all manner of leadership, right? If, if you've got a soldier with a problem, he's, I don't know, you know, can't pay his bills or he's, you know, Got stuck in jail over the weekend or whatever. I mean, soldiers have problems, right? Like they, they, they do things, they do crazy stuff. But, but if you're not there to make sure that they're bailed out or they can, you know, their needs are met, they're going to be distracted and not, not doing what they need to do. And so if they know that you have their back, they've got your back and they'll follow you anywhere. And so I learned that by practicing it, but also observing it. I, I also had commanders who I would follow to the ends of the earth because I knew they had my back. And I'm not going to go through a lot of illustrations, but I, you know, they go above and beyond. Like, for example, you, you're, you're trying to get back to a closing formation at a, for drill and you're in, and you get a speeding ticket. I've had, I've had commanders make those things right without saying how they did it because they probably should have done it that way, but they made sure that speeding ticket was covered because they knew I was trying to get back for duty. And you know what? When somebody does that for you, it makes you want to follow them if they want to go to Iraq or wherever the heck they want to go. You know, you know that they got your back. Yeah. I think that's great. I'm really glad you went into such detail because I think that might encourage people who are thinking about business to consider starting off with a leadership role in the military. Um, I think there are opportunities there that you can't find anywhere else. I do too. I mean, there's, there's, you're under so much pressure, right? When, when you're, when you're planning a live fire exercise, I mean, it's an exercise. I mean, there's a lot of fire in combat too, right? That, that's pressure. You know, the, the risks are, the, the, um, the stakes are high. And so making a wrong decision, there's, there's very big costs, very big costs. And so you, you, you learn how to really sharpen your decision-making abilities and how to, take into consideration the advice you're getting around you and, and so forth. And so all of that can be applied in business. So, uh, so you've talked a little bit about how you transitioned from the military into the world of startups um, and how after I think cyber CFO, you decided to move into Cooley. Um, and so how was Cooley set up from a business development standpoint? I think you led the team for, you know, 20 years or so, and, or actually exactly 20 years. And um, how, how was that set up? You had a team of people that you were working with to drive new business leads or, or expand existing business. You know, what, what was that like? Well, interestingly, when I took the role at PricewaterhouseCoopers prior to that, I was the first business development hire there. And uh, literally the guy who hired me said, because this hadn't been done before. He said, Carl, this is like, I, I'm, 
leading you into a dark room. I'm not giving you a flashlight and I'm not showing you the way out. You got to figure this out. And that sounded exciting to me, right? And so I did it and I figured out that nobody wants to buy a freaking audit. Like you may need an audit, but you don't want to buy one. But you are interested in the other clients those auditors work with because those are venture funds and big companies that could become customers of yours. So I figured out early on that it was all about connecting the dots. And so when I did a couple startups, then I then I joined Cooley. When I got to Cooley, they did not have a business development role. There was, it, it did not exist in the law firm world. So I was the first once again. And so when I showed up, they stuck me in a marketing role. And in that marketing role, I had to do like pitch materials and budgets and event management. I was doing all of this stuff. And all they really wanted me to do was be out in the marketplace selling. So after a year of me, you know, doing that and, and kind of being spread too thin, they finally just pulled me out of that marketing manager role and just said, you're just pure business development. They gave the managerial role to somebody else and, and I was set free. And um, and, and I thrived. So it was a year. So I wasn't running the group the entire 20 years. I was just a sole, like, you know, like producer mm. and I produced a lot. And so after doing that for a year, then they gave me more responsibility to cover the East coast. And, and so I had team members that reported into me. And then after that, they, they, um, got rid of the old uh, chief marketing officer, basically took the business development oriented marketing people, put them under me and I became head of the BD group. And, uh, and I did that for the rest of the time that I was there. So, so we had uh, 17 people in the team. Mm -hmm. Um, most of those people were either geographic or industry focused people, um, in, you know, market facing I had a, a couple of administrative people, but I turned them into revenue producers too. And I got a, 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 a head of operations. I, I don't know if it was a, it was a man, operators manager or director, but it, anyways, I, I turned them into to revenue producers. I, I, I turned the whole organization, even administrative people into revenue producers. Fascinating. Is this, so this strikes me as a really good model for service provider companies. Is this, is this now, is this something that you've seen at other uh, other law firms, other accounting firms, things like that at this point? Every every accounting firm has it now. <laughs> so yeah, PricewaterhouseCoopers, while, while I didn't create the function, I helped define the function. And and then quickly thereafter, I saw, you know, ENY and Deloitte and, and, and all of the other firms do it. Even investment banks have it, private equity funds have it, law firms have it. But most law firms don't have external facing business development roles. It's A lot of the bigger law firms are kind of old school where they think that the partner should be out in the market doing that. And then they hire business development people, but the business development people are more internal facilitators. And so I'm, I'm, at, I'm, I'm doing consulting work for a few other law firms right now. I've got a handful of other law firms. I don't know if I should rattle them all off on here because, but you know, Anyways, I mean, I, you know, so one of the law firms I'm, I'm consulting with, uh, they did not have an external facing business development role. So I'm kind of like a foreign, you know, for, foreign matter coming into the firm. But I am trying to, like, ease my way in and, and make sure I don't ruffle ruffle feathers. And, and it, it seems to be going well. So, the, like, the first phase of my engagement there was writing a plan to execute and training their associates who will become partners on how to do these things, right? And then I got hired back to come and help implement the plan. It's not full-time, it's just a you know part-time gig. And, uh, and now we're looking at expanding 
uh, that as we go into this this new year. So, um, and it, and I'm having fun doing it. It's 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 kind of like a a startup, you know. It's a it's a consulting client of mine. I've got I've got a couple of companies, and then I've got my consulting business. And in that consulting business, I have a handful of mainly law firms that I work with. I've done an investment bank and I'm, I'm talking to an accounting firm about doing some training for them. I really enjoy the business development training. It's, it's a lot of fun. Very cool. Okay. So I want to, I want to probably pick up around that time here. So you spent your time with Cooley and was it at the end of Cooley that you relocated down to Austin or was it, was it before then? Well, I relocated to Austin um, while I was with Cooley, and the plan the plan at Cooley at the time was to open an Austin office. Uh, what happened in the process of doing that, it was the, a not-so-secret uh, initiative, <laughs> so I could probably talk about it now because I don't think it's happening right now. It may happen in the future, but uh, Chicago distracted our efforts because they had a group of partners that all were coming together, and so... The, the Austin effort got distracted by Chicago, and we opened up a, a you know, fantastic Chicago office, but uh, we kind of took the eye off the, the ball in, in Austin, and all of the lateral recruits we were targeting all went to other firms, unfortunately. And so um, one of those other firms and one of those potential lateral, lateral recruits recruited me to come and, and do some work for that other firm. And so that's... That, that's what happened. And uh, as that happened, it, it was it was time to move on. I was kind of on an island out here. Mm -hmm. And so um, it was it was a good a good time to uh, to part ways. OK, so I'm hearing from from people who've moved to Austin and they love it. And I'm also hearing about some people who are leaving Austin currently. So now I'm getting I, for years. I've just heard nothing but great things about Austin. And then, and, and now I'm starting to hear, you know, two sides. What, where are you? How are you enjoying Austin? Is it a, a great move? Do you like the area? I love Austin. Yeah. Austin's fantastic. We, we were looking, my, my wife and I were looking at um, a warmer climate. Mm -hmm. That's really what we were, we were looking for. And uh, Florida was too humid for her. She was born in Florida. And uh, Austin was a good, uh, you know, it was a good middle ground. Uh, it's, it's not as humid here. The middle of the state, you know, it's, it's got very mild temperatures. The, the the winters are pretty mild. Uh, you know, this, this weekend, it'll be in the sixties here, which it, last weekend it was, it got up to 72. I actually went and got some sun at the pool. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, how many people do that? Yes. Yeah. Back, back on the East coast here, we're in, in the thirties. Yeah. So, I mean, it's consistently, I watched the, like I've been going to South by Southwest for um, a decade and I watched the temperatures you know, between the two markets, and it's consistently about 20 degrees warmer. And that's that's a life-changing uh, difference. And so the, the weather was a big part of it. Um, you know, I, I, I moved back to the, I moved to the DC area because my parents were there. And, uh, and then once you have five kids, it's really hard to move, you know, <laughs> you're outnumbered. And, uh, and so it wasn't until we got down to two kids, uh, and, and one, one is just turned 25 today, so so technically she could be out on her own if she wanted to be, um, and the other one's in college. So so we're almost empty nesters. I don't think with five kids you're ever an empty nester, but uh, so we were able to move. We 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 had a big six bedroom house on 20 acres with a horse farm. We we live in a four bedroom condo on Lake Travis now, and so it's it you know we weren't planning a downsize, but we happened upon it, literally we were on a boat on Lake Travis and we happened upon these condos and, and our condo is associated with the resort here. So I actually live at a freaking resort. If you believe that or <laughs> it's, 
it's pretty nice. I just walk across the street and, and, you know, there's restaurants and bars and pools and hot tub and, you know, a spa and gym. It's, it's sweet. That must be, that sounds so different from being on a horse farm. I imagine a horse farm would be a lot of work. It, yeah, it is. I, I, when I, when I was walking back from the gym this morning, I, I, I thank God that there were men coming to do the, the, the landscape business, <laughs> the landscape work there because, you know, 20 acres is a lot of, it's a lot of work and uh, yeah, it's nice not to have to do that anymore. Sure. So, okay. So, so, so then you, you moved to Austin, you decided to break off on your own. So why don't you just, so, so, so where do you stand today? What, what are you, what are you involved with currently? What's your, what's your major initiatives at the moment? It seems like you've got a lot going on. I do. So, so, you know, being with a big company for all those years, uh, your hands are really tied in terms of doing you know, much in the entrepreneurial front, I, you know, I was on a few advisory boards, but that was about all I could do, you know? Um, and, uh, and now that I'm on my own, I don't have any restrictions. And so, you know, I'm kind of making up for 20 years of lost time. And so I'm probably doing too much, but, but I, you know, if you partner with the right people, um, you, you can, you can accomplish a lot. And so I'm chairman of the board of a life sciences company that is um, developing cures for, previously thought incurable diseases. I'll leave it at that. We've got a, a, a patented uh, formulation out and uh, we're going through some clinical trials right now. And, and I expect big things out of that company. So that's, it's not a full-time thing. We've got a full-time CEO. Uh, and then I've got my consulting business where I've got a handful of clients. Uh, that's really what pays me. Um, uh, and so I have fun doing that. Uh, we, my my son and I launched a company called Capital Raise. So we built a LinkedIn-like platform that uh, has all of my investor contacts that I made over the 25 years I was doing business development, and and it it has a matching algorithm. And so you know, as a as a somebody who's been an entrepreneur, raising money is a black box, right? Like you, who who's going to invest in this company? What are you going to you going to get on Google? Like, how are you going to, how are you going to find these people? If you get on LinkedIn, you can see who knows who, but you don't know who invests in what. And so a lot of it is really misguided and, and, you know, shot in the dark. And so, and then you have to lean on service providers to make those referrals for you. And I know having been a service provider, you know, you're not going to get hundreds of referrals. You're going to get a dozen, you know, and cause I got, you got other work to do. And so I took all those investor contacts paid folks um, around the world, actually. I had people in a number of countries like researching the investment criteria, building out the database. And I had a software development company back in DC called Mass Light do the software development. I designed the platform. They built it. We we split the the equity in the company. And, uh, and, and so it's a pretty slick platform. You build a profile, you know, you, you, you put certain information in and in the fields and it, it, it'll, it'll pull out where the company's located, what industry it's in, what your revenue is, how much you're raising, who your customer base is, B2B, B2C, B2G, and, um, and whether or not you're a, a female or minority um, entrepreneur, you know, some funds care about that. So with all that data, uh, it'll, it'll take all, all those fields and it, it'll query it against the investor database. It's got, well over 5,000 investors we know uh, in there and it'll show us on a percentage basis, you know, which are the strongest match and, 
and so and we even have our own private coding to to like grade the relationships like how well these people are and how what the likelihood of response is because some of these guys even if you they're your buddy some of them just don't respond right and so you know so we we have our own internal system for doing that and uh, and we're able to take companies that are raising money and these are not pre-revenue companies we don't if you're if you're a life sciences company yes pre-revenue but but you got to have good clinical data uh for a software company really million dollars in annually recurring revenue is is where you're going to be most effective that and higher so so we find that the more revenue you have the more traction you have the more receptive investors are to companies nowadays so we're not looking for I'll talk to pure startups, but we're not putting them on our platform. You can build, yeah, you can build a profile on our platform for free and you can use that, that um, profile to send to investors, but we're not opening up our network because we get zero response for pre-revenue companies. And so I literally had an entrepreneur yesterday, somebody who I know from the market in the DC area, who's an accomplished entrepreneur. She came to me with the, you know, capital raise. I, I, I said, yeah, really like you and I appreciate, you know, your experience, but you got to convert those pilots to revenue. Even if she had 500 K in revenue, I mean, it's, it's better than zero. And so, you know, unfortunately we had the past. So hate turning away business, but, but it's the right thing to do if you know, you can't be effective for them. Yeah. I mean, and tell me, tell me if you disagree, but I think for a free revenue startup, it's really, you, you need the relationship there. You need, you need somebody opening doors rather. I mean, it's, it's, probably too much of a stretch to have to, to make a connection through a platform in general. Is it's that not through the platform? It's a warm referral. So we're, oh, okay. we, you're not, this is, so that's why I built this platform is because I was looking for a solution. Mm -hmm. I actually started this when I was at Cooley because I, during COVID I had so many entrepreneurs coming to me looking for help raising capital because they couldn't get out to go to business conferences. And so they needed to wow. lean on guys like me. And so literally I went from like, one or two a week to like hundreds. And I needed, I needed a solution to scale. And so that's when I started looking for a solution to a problem that I had and it didn't exist. All the platforms out there had used AI tools to send referrals or they were just cold, you know, sent from a machine and, and VCs don't respond to those. They, 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 they take deals from people they know and trust. And, and sometimes it has to be even more than an email. Sometimes I can pick up the phone and say, Hey, I sent you this deal. You need to look at this. Like it's, this is going to get done and you're going to miss it. And so, um, you know, and you can't hype all of them like that, but, but that's, that's how the relationship game works. So as a pre-revenue startup, the first thing you really need to do is you need to think about whose problem are you solving and who would pay to have that problem solved. And, and that's the best way to go about getting that early money is you get somebody to prepay you to solve their problem you customize a solution for them and cut them a, a sweetheart deal to do that because they're paying for your product development. You want to retain the rights to, to, to sell that product again and again. Um, you know, but that's, that's the best because it's non-dilutive capital and it gives you revenue. And so if you can get, so, so the other thing entrepreneurs need to know is, is having one customer is also the kiss of death, right? I had a company that I was consulting with uh, early on that had 12 million in revenue and everybody and their brother wanted to meet with this company until they saw that that 12 million was from one customer. And then everybody went cold and they said, you know, you got to diversify your customer base. And, and so I, I think the magic number is really three, right? 
two, you got lucky three, you got a business, right? And so, so having, having revenue and having not concentrated revenue is what you need to do as a startup. If you cannot get to that revenue without taking some money, you know, customer money is best. Like what I did was I divided equity with a development team because I, I'm not a developer and I, I wanted those guys in as partners. So I didn't, I didn't, you know, say, Oh, you get 20%. I get, I get the rest. I said, I want you to be an equal partner with me because I know that I'm going to need to pivot this thing. And I know that I'm going to come back to you and I'm going to need more features. And like, yeah, we did a full renaming of the platform. We did a, a redevelopment of the user interface. I mean, I, I knew that was coming. I didn't know what it was going to look like, but I've been around enough entrepreneurs in my life that I knew that that was part of the game. And so their partners, they're in, in fact, they even put a hundred thousand dollars in the company. So they're, they're in more than me. And so, you know, the, those are things you can do as an entrepreneur. And, and I know where those resources are. Interestingly enough, where we also, because so many of our capital raise clients also are building software, we also stood up a software development company. So, so I, yeah, I mean, this is, it was just an opportunistic thing where, where I, I have this network of all these international software developers. And so we, we cobbled that together and we have developers in, in Pakistan, India, in Eastern Europe and South America. And, and so we call it pull, pull bar software solutions. And so that's a, that's a, an opportunistic company that when we, when we come across somebody that has software development needs, rather than just saying, here, call my buddy, we say, we can handle that for you through this company that we've set up. And these are people that we know we've vetted them and, and we've got pre-negotiated prices with them. We've got contracts in place. And so it's, it's, it's streamlined. So, so that's, yeah, I'm an entrepreneur now. So you just do these things, right? Very cool. So, so that's two. So you've got two startups going on. Yeah. And then I've got another one with a partner that um, I was actually on the team meeting this morning. We've got, we've got, a handful of people, six or seven people in Karachi, Pakistan. It's called Super Connector LLC. It doesn't take a lot of my time. I, I, I literally, as I'm getting ready in the morning, they, their time, it's 8.30 a.m. my time and and whatever it is over there. I think it's, they're almost like 11 or 12 hours difference. And so it's eating over there. And so the team gets on. I, I pretty much listen in because we've got somebody very capable who runs that team. And, uh, and so what we're doing is we're putting business development professionals at – conferences internationally so mm -hmm. as a as an entrepreneur you may want to have a presence in beijing so these are actually places where we've had these connectors we've had them as as close by as austin as far away as as shanghai and saudi arabia dubai you know so we've placed connectors at conferences and so what we've started doing is signing up actual conferences so so like step in I, I I think they have conferences in this year's is in Dubai, but they also do Saudi Arabia. So we work with with Step. It's a huge conference to to sell through their conference platform. Like if somebody signs up to go to Step, but they can't they can't place a team there because it's it's expensive to you know send all those people there. It's it's hard to go anywhere with, without spending ten thousand dollars, right? we can do it under a thousand dollars for, for a connector. Right. And so it's like a 10 X savings in, 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 or if you're a CEO of a company and, and you want to go somewhere, but you got to do some high level meetings and you want to augment your presence at that conference. And so you want some people working your booth while you're off meeting with other CEOs, we can do that. And they will, they, they're trained 
that are vetted and, and they will bring you the leads or whatever it is you want from them, they'll do. Very cool. It sounds like it sounds like all three of those ventures are things that are really aligned with your business experience and, and challenges you've had just in general, being a super connector, you know, being uh, raising capital. You know, all of this seems to draw or at least be very core to some of the issues you've dealt with in your career. Yeah, and they are. And Will, and now that I'm out, you know, on my own, I, I'm not doing all this stuff myself. My my son, who has the same name as me. He's he's doing the capital raise platform with me, and he's got a he's got a number of contractors he can pull in as he needs. You know, we've got we've got an international network of contractors, so so that's he's it's in capable hands. He's he's kind of running that. I, I oversee it. Super connector. I do it with a partner, but we've got a team in place. They're running it. They're doing it. You know, we jump in on the calls when we can, and and I don't even have to say I don't even say anything on the calls because they're they're so they're so focused on what they need to do. I, I, you know, like I'll approve the business plan for the year. I, I'll, I'll put in, give some input on incentive structures for the team, you know, but other than that, I'm not, it's not like I'm working, you know, eight hours, 10 hours a day doing it. I, I, I spend maybe, you know, half hour to an hour a day while I'm, you know, getting dressed in the morning. <laughs> so it's, it's fine. And, uh, or driving, you know, to, to, uh, one of my client engagements. So, so that doesn't take a lot of time. The, the soft, the software development business, that, that is a, a, a virtual business. I've got a team that we've assembled, but they're all contractors. You know, it's, it's, it, it's, it's easy to do these things when you have the right structures in place and good people. Yeah. Very cool. So then, um, and so with all the people that are helping out, is that, has that, is that what's giving you the time to find time to write a book here at this, at this stage? No, I had to make time to write that book. That book I started, it's been a three-year journey. So I was actually still at Cooley, you know, when I started doing that. It was, you know, on vacation, on weekends, you know, I, 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 I was writing that thing for a while and then it, it was like sitting on my computer. And so I was like, gosh, you know, this thing isn't doing any good at sitting on my computer. So I published some articles on LinkedIn that got some looks. And and then I realized if I'm ever going to turn this in, into a book, I need help. Like, you know, I had like eight or nine essays that I wrote and, and I, I needed somebody to help me pull it together. So I engaged a, a group called Leaders Press that uh, they have, you know, a team that's done this many times before. They've got writers to help you take what you've written and what's in your head and to bring it out. And and so it's it's a pretty cool process. So so they they, you know, in addition to the stuff I had already written, they would give me uh they, they helped me come up with an outline. They help they help develop questions around that outline to ask me questions. Uh and so I answered those questions in writing and in you know recorded interviews and so they would take a combination of what i wrote my answers to my questions and what i said and they would bring that all together and make it into something that made sense ultimately i had the last say on everything you know by the time by the time we were in the end it was just myself you know doing doing the edits at the end uh but but i the you know it, it kind of takes a village to do a book right i i after two years of working on this when i thought it was done my my oldest daughter, she's 27 years old. Um, her name's Teresa. She goes by Twee. She she got a hold of my book on vacation one summer, and she said, "Dad, I read a lot of self help books. I feel like I'm called to help you do this. So let me help you." And so she read the book, and she <laughs> I'll never forget. She goes, "Dad, 
you got to be willing to kill your baby. And I'm like, I, I can't kill my baby. I, I said, you know, you want to help me kill it, you know, fine. But I, but I'm not, I like, I'm too close to this. And so she like whacked a third of the book. Wow. I said, you got to cut all this out because it's too business oriented and like, and it, and it's written for an extrovert and I'm an introvert and I, I, I can't relate. And so I, I whacked a third of the book and then I had to rewrite a bunch of that. And yeah, it was, it was, it was an interesting process. So it, it extended that process by a year, but it's a lot better now wow. since, since she got involved. And I, and I think it's getting better reviews. I've had all so far, knockwood all five-star reviews, at least on Amazon. I haven't seen what I've got on Barnes and Noble yet. Um, you know, and had I not made those changes, I don't think I would, I probably had some one and two stars in there. <laughs> I think it was Stephen King that said, um, you're not a writer until you can kill your favorite character. Yeah. Well, there weren't really characters at the book <laughs> other than other than me. I don't want to kill, yeah, kill yeah. myself, you know. <laughs> I, 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 next book, I think it'd be easier to interview other people and like have, have other characters in the book um, because it's a lot of work just pulling it all out of your head. But I guess for a first book, it makes sense, right? I it all came out of my head. Um, and I, and I also incorporated some, I, I take that back. I did do a podcast a year in advance of doing the book. And the idea was to develop content for the book. And what happened was the book was originally going to be on business development, but I realized as I got close, this is so much of a niche audience. Like how many BD people are out there, right? Everybody, everybody wants self-help and lifestyle. Right. And so, so, the the podcast interviews were around business development best practices. So some of those things were applicable because what I did was I, I took practices that I used to grow revenue and business development that worked is human relationships is what it was all about. Right. And so those same, same things that you do to manage human relationships in a professional services environment, by the way, they also work at home <laughs> when you're managing a family, you know, you got a spouse and kids you got friends in the community, you're involved in nonprofit organizations, you know, those same, those same principles apply. And so what I did was I took what I was writing for business and I expanded it to, to cover other aspects of life. So it sounds like the experience of writing a book, it was long, it, but it was good enough that you're considering doing more books. Well, we'll see. Let's, let's see how this one does, you know? I mean, I, yeah, possibly. Uh, I, I, we're, we're like not even a month into uh, having this one in the marketplace. I mean, it was launched uh, December 12th. Unfortunately, I was in Saudi Arabia when it launched, so I, I wasn't as hands-on as I could have been here. Um, but, you know, it's at least it was out before Christmas, and some people bought it for Christmas, so. I have a couple other questions I wanted to ask. I try, I'm trying to remember to always ask people like you, about AI, you know, what are you personally using AI for at this moment, if anything? Well, so AI, I'm glad it didn't like chat GPT at least didn't exist when I was writing my book because it would be tempting to go and, and, you know, crowdsource information. Um, I'm pretty sure actually an uptick in books over the next few years is my guess. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a dyslexic friend who's using chat GPT to write his book because he can't, he can't write it himself. And, and, and so I get that, but, but so I was finishing my book, putting the final touches on it when chat GPT came out and, and there was one chapter in one section where I, I did go to chat GPT to see what, what it would say. And it was pretty spot on in terms of what I had already written. And so 
it's good at telling you what you might be forgetting, right? And so I did I did borrow some memory joggers there, but I didn't let it write my book. Um, but when I've written, I've done speeches. I've done a couple speeches uh, recently. And when you're talking about complex topics such as cultural similarities and differences between the East and West, mm. that was expanded to cover religious similarities and differences. I mean, you want to make sure you're not yeah. creating a you know, like a cultural faux pas and saying something wrong. And so going to chat GPT and, and asking questions, and it's pretty good on culture and religion and, you know, non, non-political topics. You might say religion can be political, but, but chat GPT does a pretty good job. I mean, like, you ask you ask it what you know what do Muslims believe about X or what does what does the Hindu faith say or or you know you just just stuff that you don't know right you know ChatGPT can give you a pretty good synopsis of what that is and so you know rather than having to go read massive text but I you know I've read the Quran so I know what the Quran says but it's a big book right you know I don't remember everything that's in it so going back and and you know asking what you know old and new testament prophets do does islam recognize right for example that, that's an example right and chat gpt goes out to the world and pulls that in so so preparing to do a heavy topic like that yeah chat gpt is great or um i hate to say it being that i i consult for law firms you know chat gpt can put together a mean legal document you yeah. know just i i wanted to give my my son some of my equity in my business to incentivize him. I couldn't give him, I couldn't get my co-founder degree to give him too much. So I just gave him some of mine uh, and I wanted to develop a vesting schedule, which that's an unusual thing to do. Like, like to have a stock transfer and it's like, I'm not going to transfer a bunch of stock even to my son, unless he's going to be here for a while. Right. If he's going to like leave in six months and I give him whatever I gave him four or 5%, like, you know, and he leaves, then, then that's, that's pointless. Right. And so, and so I had to set up a vesting schedule and, and chat GPT surprisingly came up with it, you know, and, and other little contracts. I mean, if I was doing some big, like big thing, I, you know, yeah. Hire a law firm for like some bet the, bet the company thing, but for little stuff, chat GPT is pretty good. Yeah. I've had the same experience. I'm using it for when I do a training for a client, then I will often now use ChatGPT to to quickly draft me an outline, and then I'll fill in the blanks. I'll kind of build the training, but because I like it to be in my voice and 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 all of that. But I found it to be a tremendous time saver with outlines and curriculums and stuff like that. Position descriptions, like position descriptions, I need a, a position description for a chief revenue officer. Boom, spot on. I didn't change a word, but I but you have to know. I mean. Don't substitute chat GPT or any AI for, for what, you know, your God given knowledge, because, you know, like I've been around for a while and I've been out in the market for a long time. So I've got a pretty good knowledge base. So, so when I was going to develop a business development plan for that law firm, I mentioned for a geography, I went to chat, chat GPT and interestingly, you know, since law firm business development is relatively new, it gave me a lot of marketing stuff right and and so when i when i looked at it i'm like uh yeah okay but you're missing this this and this i actually know more than the the chat gpt large language model about 
law firm business development because I, I've been in it longer than anybody I know. Yeah. Yeah, I've found ChatGPT to be factually incorrect in a few areas, like in politics, it'll sometimes get the Democrat versus the Republican wrong in, in very obvious and key ways. And, um, you know, I think I think that's an indication, that type of thing is an indication that, I mean, it's going to be a couple of years probably before those types of errors, I would imagine, are going to become less and less frequent. I'm sure that'll change adoption. I remember reading that, um, you know, there's certain types of technology that have to be perfect before they can truly be adopted and, and, and trusted. Other technologies don't have to be perfect. You know, they can be 80% of the way done and then get huge mainstream adoption. AI is interesting. Like, I think some areas of it only need 80%. And then it's super, like, if, it, if there's a good curriculum that I can draft, that I can have produced, about for a HubSpot training or a Google Analytics training or an advertising training, then then wonderful. I fill in the rest of it. I correct any mistakes. But things in medicine and you know who knows these other areas. I think AI could totally transform those those industries. But it's probably going to be a couple of years, I would imagine, because they need to work out certain certain kinks. Uh, so it, it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting you know probably technological revolution, you know, that, that we're seeing unfold. I, I think that some of the bigger issues with AI are, are like the deep fakes that we're going to see. I mean, you, you could have videos of people saying stuff that they didn't say, you know, doing stuff that they didn't do, you know, so, so my, my approach now that I've been, I've actually been burned a few times by AI, you know, you know, you hear somebody say something that they didn't say and you think they said it. And then you realize that wasn't them saying it. That was, and computer rendition of them saying it. And so you fool me once, you know, all right, that was a lesson. But after that, you know, you better, you better have your spidey sense on because, because you don't know, like even, even with like the, the Israeli Palestinian conflict, like there's, there's propaganda on both sides of that issue. And, and so you see, you see these horrific images and you're like, all right, is that real? Like, did that really happen or is that a, like an AI generated, you know, propaganda and both sides are guilty of it. And so I, I, I tend to not believe stuff I see now. I am very skeptical. If, if even when I hear stuff in the news, I, I'm like, all right, is that really happening? Like, like, can you really trust the news anymore? And, and so, you know, social media where you've actually know people who are in certain areas um, I think, you know, being able to send a direct message to somebody and say, Hey, are bombs falling near you? <laughs> like, have you, like, I saw you post that picture. Did you take it? Yeah. Or was that one that you put up that somebody else posted? Right. You know, it, 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 that's, that's where we are now in terms of validating whether or not something's real. You, you've got to almost go to the source and have feet on this, you know, feet on the street. I don't know if you fall in this whole like Miami thing that happened like three days ago. All right. So sure, yeah. it, maybe not three days ago when, when this airs, but, but, but there was, there was this huge police presence in Miami, assuming it's real, right? Like, like 60 cop cars show up. And, and so there's stuff going around on social media that there were like eight to 10 foot like beings there. And, and, and so I'm looking at this and I'm like, okay, if all those police cars showed up, it's not just for some kids like, having a fight or shooting up fireworks, right? Like something was going down. What was it? And then you start getting these crazy things out there, you know? And so 
I'm not going to do a deep dive into the conspiracy stuff on that, but but I'd like to talk to somebody in Miami who was there and say, hey, were all those cop cars there? What what was going down? Like, <laughs> was it fireworks? Was it a was it a fight? Or were there like eight to ten foot tall creatures walking around? Like like what went down? Like I you know you see these. It's kind of like Bigfoot when I was a kid. Like you see these fuzzy pictures. Like all right, you know, like you know. What actually happened? So that's that's kind of where we are, Will. I agree. I agree. It's fascinating, and it's 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 interesting also because so many things about the internet and about technology make things more efficient, and in our lives and business. And now we see this turning backwards a little bit because you're right. Now we've got to verify things, and there's some things that can't be verified. I mean, you know, many times we're not going to know people who are directly involved or directly in the vicinity of a news event that we wanted we want to know about. And, uh, you know, and, and so that creates an issue for believability right there. But even if we do know people around, it, it's certainly not the most efficient. And so we're now we're in a very strange place with where technology has taken us. Absolutely. Whole new world. So Whole new world. I've got one more question here. So you mentioned politics. So that politics was an early interest of yours. Did you did you think about have you left the military? whether you were going to go into business or go into politics, or did you just have an interest in politics that you thought you might develop at some point? I, I had an interest in politics. And I tell you, um, after the 2016 election, which is probably the nastiest campaign I've ever watched, I really kind of checked those ambitions. I'm like, yeah, I'm too nice of a guy. Yeah. Like I, you know, I found a lot of it very entertaining. Especially the Republican primary, uh, that was that was funny beyond. Like it was it was better than going to see a stand up, you know, comedy. Uh, but but do I want to be part of that? No, no. I mean, like I could watch that as 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 entertainment, um, but it's not it's not the politics I grew up with. And and so you know, I've kind of checked those ambitions. Uh, Will uh, could I ever? you know, get back to that. Maybe if the political landscape changed, if we, if we approach things a little differently, you know, I, I don't want to be in a contest where I'm belittling somebody because of how they look or, you know, that that's, that's really not, that's not what it's about for me. If, if there's, if there's a, a chance to do good in the world, you know, and, and have a positive impact and not demonize the other side. I mean, I'm all about finding common ground. Like, like in my book, you know, back to the book, in my book, I talk about a situation where back when I was politically involved, if I, if I could tell this story, well, I know we've been at this for a while. I, I was working the polls for one of the political parties. Won't say which, but there was, there was a gentleman working the polls for the other political party. And, and so we're standing out literature. The people as they're walking in, it's a while back. And, I just met him there, but he knew, he knew my, my family. He like, I think he had met my wife and knew of my kids, you know, lived down the street from me and he had a sheep farm. I had a horse farm and he had a, like a, a vineyard and uh, we became friends there at the pole. You don't see that now. I mean, you can see people fighting and like, you know, we actually became friends in, in he hired and I, I, I wrote this whole story in, in my book. He hired my son. He actually said, does your son want to come work? at my, my farm. And I said, I think he may, let me check. You know, he was 12 years old. And so I, I, he did, he wanted to do that. And, and he actually worked there from age 12 to 18. 
and and the, the gentleman's name was Malcolm Baldwin. I can say it. He's he's passed away, um, but I I remember him coming to me. He's a real gentleman. He goes he goes Carl, do you mind if I try to indoctrinate your your son? I'm like Malcolm, I've, I've I've had twelve years of indoctrination. I'm, I mean, take your best take your best shot. And so I and I then I went and told my son. My I said, look, Malcolm's a smart guy. Like and I might not agree with his politics, but but he's He's a brilliant environmental attorney. He, he he worked under under Reagan, you know, and and then he and then he thought, had a falling out there, and and you know, had different point of view, and and he's he's very much a, an evolutionist. Where I'm a I'm not anymore. <laughs> I'm a you know I, I had a change at the age of 24, and and so uh, I remember he came back to me and he said, Carl, do you mind if I teach your son about? Um, what was Darwin's book? The um, Origin of Species. Yeah, yeah. I said, I said, no. In fact, I'll, I'll buy him the book. And so I bought my son the book. I said, you better understand why you believe what you believe, because he knows why he believes what he believes. Like, you know, this is going to be interesting. And I, I said, I, and I also told my son, I said, you are never going to be effective at arguing your point of view unless you can argue the other point person's point of view equally as well. And so. I, I gave him that challenge and the two of them had the, these wonderful conversations. I mean, and, and he loved it. I mean, I, I think it kept him alive all those years, just talking to my son and, and my, my son to his credit, he, he would go back and he would research and go back and talk to him. And, and he, he, he didn't, he didn't change his views. He, 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 you know, he understood what, what he believed, but he, he understood more deeply what he believed. And so the two of them had this wonderful relationship. And then when my son made Eagle Scout at the age of 18, Malcolm was the keynote speaker at his uh, Eagle Scout thing. And and we started out meeting, a, like, uh, you know, representing different political parties. That's the t- type of guy I am. Like, I, I don't want to be in a political situation where he's the enemy and and I have to, like, demonize him and, and turn him into some like non-human uh you know to, to score political points no i mean i've sat down with people friends of mine on the opposite end of the political spectrum in san francisco and we're looking at the homeless problem and and we're talking about you know why did they like look at these people they, they, these people need help they don't they shouldn't be on the street some of these people are not equipped to be on the streets you know i, I said when i was in college and this predate you a little bit because you were just a kid they closed down the mental institutions i'm sure the mental institutions had problems but but you know that was a better place than like you know defecating on the streets and and like smoking crack and and shooting up on the streets is what you see in san francisco and and like the two of us agreed we agreed on that it's like okay why can't like why can't two rational intelligent people get together different political views and like come up with a solution to this like why do these people have to be pawns you know what i mean it's like yeah it it makes no sense to me and 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 it's like that with everything everything like green energy versus oil i mean come on i mean like there's a place for green energy but there's a place for oil like like can't we be rational about these things and and like there's a there's a there's a, a meeting in the middle that that people just don't do there's a compromise even back like when reagan was president tip o'neill was was speaker of the house I, you know and it was legendary because these guys you know yeah it was politics during the day but they would like go and i don't know if they would have drinks or but they would break bread at, at night i mean they were actually friends with each other yeah. 
Yeah. I miss those days. Those are the days when I wanted to be into politics where you could you could have an opponent, but but your opponent's another human being and, and you could work out, you know, deals with these people and not just just be gridlock. I, 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 I'd like to see I'd like to see politics change and, and maybe the two party system needs to be blown up. I don't know. I don't really identify with either political party. Will that's that's another challenge that I have is 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 you know I, I'm not a I'm not a Democrat, but I'm not a Republican. I mean, like like I'm not either of those, and they're both corrupt. And so and so yeah, I mean, to get elected nowadays, you got to fit yourself into one of those political parties. But like, look at RFK Jr. Like, here's a guy who's kind of a unique guy, right? And and there's a lot of I mean, he was running as, as a Democrat, but I know a lot of like Republicans or conservatives that like the stuff he was saying and, and now he's an independent. So I don't know what happens with this campaign, but I think we need more voices like that, that, that don't really fit the mold. Right. Because you can't pigeonhole me into, into either of these things. Yeah. So. I, I feel the same way. I mean, I think we, you know, I, I do, I think we could use more people with the attitude that you're describing, you know, in politics that are not just, you know, bomb throwers. I actually, I don't know if you know this, but I started off my career in politics. I was press secretary for Congressman Frank Wolf, who probably represented you for a long time. Yeah, I, I actually, I, I went to, this is a small world. I went to elementary school with his daughter, Virginia. Okay. Yeah, we were kids in first grade together. So like, we were in first grade together. We were in sixth, we were in uh, sixth grade together. And then, and then when um, we were like raising kids, we went to the same church. And it was, it was funny. So Frank Wolf, sorry, just, just, I remember running into Frank Wolf and I told him I was, I was moving out of his district. Like, you know, because I, I um, was building a house out in Levittsville. He goes, Oh, he, he said, this is the kind of politician he was. He said, he said, you're going to need to find a new church. And he actually, he actually recommended a church for me out there because, you know, just being the politically astute guy he, he sure. was, you know, and, and I think his daughter ended up like showed up at that church as well. I, I've lost track of her because I'm in Texas now, but, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I, Frank, Frank was a great guy and he had a good family. Yeah. And his best friend in Congress was a Democrat. He was about as conservative as you could get in some ways, not, not in all ways, but in, in some ways he was very conservative Best friend across the aisle is a Democrat. I don't think you see that very often now. I will also say one of the best things, you know, most wonderful things that happened to me was getting out of politics when I did. You know, I got out around 2010, maybe a little before then, and it was already changing. You know, it was already becoming a much more negative place, uh, but nothing compared to where it is today. I mean, today, you know, the, the, the way campaigns are, it's totally different than, than I recall. I think I, I think I think we're on the cusp of some change. I, I do. I hope. I, I hope uh, because it's just you know we're at the point now where people don't even trust the elections. Like, like you know, like yeah. I don't know what the percent, percentage is now, but but it's you know it's a growing percentage of people that that don't believe our elections are legit, and so I, that's a problem. That's a huge problem. I mean, that that could be one of the biggest problems. If you if you don't trust the election results, unless your side wins, then you know that could lead to huge issues. You know, down the road. I mean, we think we've seen huge issues already, and we have in some ways, but it could get a lot worse. So if if we start to return to like a normal thing, like what we're talking about here, could I get reinterested? Yeah, I could. But but it's 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 not going to be 
it's not going to be the politics of today. It's going to be a new type of politics where we're, we're, we're not like blowing each other up. And, and like, I mean, they're talking about assassinating candidates and, 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 and like imprisoning candidates. I mean, this is crazy talk, right? This is third world nonsense. Well, on a more happy note, I, you know, this has been an awesome hour that we've spent together and I, I, I've learned a lot about you. I, I feel like I've learned a lot in, you know, about business here from your experience and I'm sure a lot of people are going to benefit from this. Um, can you tell us where, where can people buy your book? So on Amazon or Barnes and Noble, there's, there's other places, but those are the two big ones. It's how to live the abundant life. And it's really, it's, it's not about, this is not about getting rich. It's not about financial blessings. Yeah, that's part of it, but it's, it's a small part of it. It's, it's really, it's, it's really the abundance of relationships and, and, and it's, it's taking a, an approach to life and business that's not consistent with human nature. It's doing the opposite of what comes natural. It's, it's, it's give to get, it's, you know, you want to be first to be last and servant of all kind of some, some of the stuff we've been talking about. It's, it's, it's really having an abundance, um, in all aspects of life. And so I, I think if you want to turn over a new leaf for 2024, uh, I, I encourage you, you can either buy the, if you like an old fashioned book, you know, order the book, it's 12.95, or there's a 99, while the, the deal's out there, it's a 99 cent uh, Kindle version of it where you can download the app and you just get a free Kindle app and you can read read the book. And we're doing that to to juice up sales, to get it out there. It's a positive message and to get some reviews. So cool. if you if you buy it, review it, please. Well, I'm looking forward to reading it and and, uh, and happy to, to leave a, a review once I'm done. Thanks, Will. I appreciate it more than you know. Well, thanks for, thanks for being on, on the show. This has been a great hour. Thanks, Will. Mm -hmm.